Hello and welcome to the People Powered Green Left Podcast, where we give a voice to the 99% and not the big corporations. If you think this project is important, please consider becoming a supporter today. Now, on to our latest episode. You're listening to Green Left. Our episode today is features a special recording from an online forum that was organised by Green Left titled COVID-19 in the Global South, which took place on April 11th and featured frontline socialists from countries such as the Philippines, Malaysia, India and Iraq. The first part of this episode includes recordings of the following speeches by Rahana Muldeen um, from the Party of Labouring Masses in the Philippines and Dr Kumar Chakokumar the Red Medical Doctor from the Socialist Party of Malaysia, the PSM. Uh, thank you for Socialist Alliance uh, for putting this uh, forum on. And it's very good to connect with all the comrades, the speakers, uh, people uh, who are listening in and who contribute later on. Uh, I hope uh, all the comrades are keeping well and safe in these very trying times. Well, every academic researcher who looked into this area knew that this was coming. Even intelligence agencies seemed to know that it was coming. And not a single government in the world wasn't warned. So what we're witnessing, and Rachel went through the figure numbers on it, is a huge failure of not only the public health system, but the system as a whole. I've been asked to talk uh, on the Philippines. The capacity of the Philippine state to provide even the modicum of public services, systems and related infrastructure such as health, water, power, etc., public education, has been gutted after decades of structure, structural adjustment programs, debt, dictates of neoliberal economic policies imposed by the IMF, World Bank, and so on, multilateral, bilateral agreements with imperialist countries, all enthusiastically embraced by our technocrats and successive elite governments. The country has no universal health care program and one of the most expensive health services in the region. The system, the public health system was in crisis, and now it has to meet the corona crisis. And on top of all this, our debt repayment, the never-decreasing uh, never debt, with one-third of our annual national budget automatically appropriated for debt repayments. This ailing public sector coexists, however, with the so-called strong arm of the state, which has been maintained and which has even increased its capacity to mobilize the military and the police to impose a range of authoritarian measures, from a war against the urban poor resulting in, in the deaths of thousands, mainly youth, in the guise of a campaign against drugs, to martial law in the southern island of Mindanao. Uh, and today, this dual character of both a weak and strong-armed state is starkly demonstrated in the Duterte regime's response to the COVID pandemic. In terms of the numbers, we are reassuringly told by the Department of Health that our numbers don't, are not looking too bad, that they're even looking good. As of uh, 4 p.m. yesterday, there were 4,200 approximately confirmed cases of, uh, of the coronavirus uh, and 119 new cases, which was a bit of a decrease from the 
previous 24 hours and so on. But if you look at our case fatality rates, it's, it's really high. It's probably one of the highest in the region. 5.3% is our case fatality rate. If you look at our case recovery rate, it's much lower than the case fatality rate. It's around 3.4%, uh, which is also high. And these figures of around 4,200 confirmed cases, these figures are flabby because no substantive testing has been done as yet. The government is promising that mass testing will start, will only start next week, April 14. And one of, the, one of the most startling examples of the crisis of our public health system facing the corona crisis are the number of health workers who are infected and who are dying. Over 200 doctors and nurses in the country have contracted the coronavirus. And this is Department of Health figures, which would be conservative. Out of these 200, 65% are doctors and 25% are nurses. And 21 doctors have died to date. And these are figures from yesterday. And these are people who head up hospitals. These are, you know, these are people who are basically responsible, a lot of them, for leading uh, the, the, uh, uh, the response against the crisis. And the Philippine Medical Association has come out with a very clear statement that the main reason for the contraction and the death of our health personnel is the lack of protective equipment. Very clear statement from the Philippine Medical Association. The Department of Health has apparently procured one million protective uh, equipment pieces for distribution, and these include donations. People are just going and donating some of this stuff, and it's all stuck uh, in this massive quagmire of red tape. So instead of addressing the weakness in the health system and infrastructure as its main priority, the Duterte regime strategy has been to declare a lockdown of the entire capital, Metro Manila, the national capital region, which later on uh, uh, extended to the entire island of Luzon. Uh, it started on the 15th of March. It went, it's uh, been going on uh, for several weeks now. It was a one-month uh, lockdown. It has now been extended to... Uh, April 30. And the main feature of this lockdown has been the deployment of police and some units of the military. And the left has responded and said, and uh, has opposed this kind of lockdown, saying that this is a military response to a public health crisis. And when the lockdown was announced, it was done at a, a press conference where Duterte was surrounded by the leaders of the Philippine National Police and the armed services of the Philippines. There was the uh, Secretary of Health and there were no public health officials. There were no doctors and uh, lead, uh, uh, the medical experts who were leading this at that press conference. We are currently under enhanced community quarantine, which is strict home quarantine for all households, transportation suspended, and only the provision of food and essential health services. Uh, this has been enforced by checkpoints everywhere, local checkpoints, even in the barrios. Uh, barrios are surrounded with local checkpoints. Passes are needed to pass through, very limited movement, public transport has ceased, uh, and so on. Even the transport of 
uh, emergency health personnel in tricycles is not allowed. Now, Duterte has repeatedly announced that anyone violating this state, this state of enhanced, what he calls, what they call enhanced community quarantine will be arrested, including for resistance and disobedience to persons in authority under the provisions of the penal code. So workers, people simply trying to shop for food, workers trying to get to work, students who are uh, helping families, trying to, uh, trying to, uh, find food and so on are now being arrested. 19 members of our local vendors association, the Metro Manila Vendors Associ Association in my area, they were trying to sell their goods because they, because they need food, because they need money to live, were arrested a few days ago. And we ran a massive campaign, a small victory. They were released without charges because of the protest. And unlike in, for example, in South Korea, where the military and police carried out temperature checks, testing, cleanup, and disinfecting, our, armed, our police and armed personnel at the checkpoints are doing none of this. And in fact, in the first few days, they weren't even provided with the basic safety equipment, such as masks and hand sanitizers. That came later on. On March 23, Congress passed what's called the Bainihan to Heal as One Act. Bainihan in the Philippines is the concept of community, communal solidarity. And this granted President Duterte additional or special powers to deal with the pandemic. And these powers included being able to realign and amass massive sums of money, including for the budget, from the COVID response. Some 275 billion pesos, divide that by 40, that's roughly about, uh, what is it, about 60 uh, six billion, um, seven billion dollars um, uh, uh, was uh, has been pulled out of the budget for the COVID response. None of this money has been distributed as yet. Again, it's stuck in red tape. Stringent criteria uh, for beneficiaries imposed by the Department of Social Welfare. And uh, part of the problem with this stringent criteria that is being uh, imposed by the Department of Social Welfare and the government, and it's not reaching the beneficiaries because of that, is this absurd notion of targeted poverty alleviation programs that has been pushed down our throat by development banks, development agencies, and uh, international financial institutions. He has also announced around... Um, around uh, 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 25 billion pesos for a war chest to fight COVID, but much of this money, about 14 billion dollars, uh, 14 billion pesos, is going to the tourism budget to bail out uh, companies in the tourism sector. Meanwhile, as I said, mass testing is only going to be uh, started this uh, April 14. Uh, we have a population of around 109 million people. We have only six testing centers across the country. In early March, only 2,000 testing kits were available, and Duterte's family and his cronies were given preferential treatment. Even though, they, to, uh, uh, for the use of these test kits, even though they didn't meet the Department of Health criteria. And this was a huge scandal. Uh, all over the papers, all over the TV, all over social media, where these test kits were 
essentially being plundered, 2,000 test kits essentially being plundered by Duterte and his cronies for, for their own personal use. So there was a public outcry and demands for substantial testing, including mass testing. We launched a national campaign for mass testing in the communities. And under this massive public pressure, the government has now agreed to conduct mass testing beginning April 14. And part, part of the outrage, the motivation and outrage of people is also because of the experience of other countries in the region. They see the reports, they, they learn in the news about how South Korea and Vietnam uh, have been um, uh, have been fairly successful in uh, you know flattening the curve or, or, what, or how or how however they describe it um, and part of the and one of the main reasons was because of the substantial testing that they have carried out. Vietnam has had no fatalities to date as far as we know. Well, our scientists responded very fast. The University of the Philippines developed a test kit within a matter of a couple of weeks, uh, much cheaper than the international prices of these test kits. Um, and, but, we, we, but this was uh, bogged down again in the bureaucracy and it took the Department of Health about three to four weeks to validate these test kits. They have now been validated and we're trying to get, and some of these will be used on the 14th of April, uh, but there are still problems with the bureaucratic red tape and so on. Now, the mayors at the local level are really feeling the pressure of this as well. The money isn't coming down. This 275 billion pesos that Duterte has managed to amass for around himself through his special powers has not gone down to the local mayors. And under absolute, and in, there's a lot of desperation, a lot of pressure, uh, uh, and the mayors are starting to take their uh, own initiative. Some of the mayors that we backed in the last election campaign and who won uh, have taken a number of initiatives, including paying uh, uh, workers who are being laid off, uh, full salaries, hazard pay, uh, mobilizing tricycles so that uh, the health workers and emergency personnel can get, uh, get to work. And these essentially go against the regulations imposed by the Duterte regime. And um, also setting up testing centers. They've basically converted hospitals and so on, uh, quickly set up some labs with uh, local experts, with the universities in their areas. Now, the Department of Health has refused to endorse any of these testing centers so far. They're, they're basically trying to block, they've basically blocked it. And, um, uh, uh, and anyway, these mayors are under enormous pressure. They're taking initiatives and the Duterte regime has come out and uh, Duterte in a press conference a couple of weeks ago said that they that if these mayors did not strictly comply by these regulations and that included tricycles to be allowed to take emergency workers to work, that was one of the things that he did not want to happen, that these mayors would be arrested and would file uh, be fi uh, filed with criminal charges. Um, now, the impact of the crisis on workers and the urban poor, as you can expect, has been devastating. Hunger has increased. Suicides has increased, and in a very conservative Catholic country. Uh, food relief is not coming from the government. The LGUs and barangays 
barrios are using calamity funds, private donations, whatever funds that they can get their hands on to di distribute food relief. And this is essentially a few kilos of rice and canned goods. Staying at home is not an option for, for people, uh, um, for a majority of people in the Philippines. Uh, staying at home is just not an option. And uh, recently, some uh, residents in one of the urban poor communities close to us, uh, the city of uh, San Roque, uh, they just mobilized, uh, walked out of their homes, walked out of their communities, took over one of the major highways demanding food. Uh, they were arrested, but once again, because of public pressure, they have been released, and it worked. They were released because there was enormous public pressure. People just brought donations and paid their bail, and then people just brought food, and, and it actually worked, and it was a little success story. And there was one, um, one uh, comment that was made one of the lead, by one of the leaders of this. It was a spontaneous uh, uh, gathering a spontaneous mobilization. Uh, the left had mass organizations in the area. We joined it, our members joined it, but it really was a spontaneous action. And there was one of the leaders of it who said, I'm not afraid of COVID-19. What's frightening us is dying with our eyes open because of hunger. And that is essentially the sentiment in the country uh, of the Masa today. Uh, our relief, of course, our relief operations are ongoing. We started it from day one. We've continued, continued, continued it every day, including the Easter holidays where everything is locked down in Catholic Philippines. Uh, we started with the homeless, uh, and now we have expanded it to other urban poor areas. And of course, we make sure that our base is also uh, uh, secured. Uh, the Department of Labor and, and, and uh, Employment has announced a one-time financial assistance of 5,000 pesos for every worker, which is about $3 per day for 30 days. But this is, but uh, again, this is rigged because the employers have to apply for it. Workers can't apply for it directly. Uh, and workers in the informal, and workers who are outside Metro Manila, who are now stranded from their workplaces because of the lockdown, can't apply for it from outside Metro Manila, informal sector workers are given no assistance and so on. Meanwhile, in the height of all this, the Department of Social Welfare came out several weeks ago and temp temporarily suspended its poverty alleviation cash grants to uh, the poorest families in the country. I should also add that the regime is also facing a political crisis of sorts. We have a sick president. He's extremely ill with liver cancer. Uh, he rambles at daily press conferences, possibly beats Don the uh, ramble, ramblings of Donald Trump. Um, a couple of days ago, he came out uh, on national TV and declared that there was no money in the coffers. He didn't know what to do. He was going to sell all government's assets to be able to raise money. But the problem is all government, most of the valuable government assets have already been sold as a result of privatization. The only place he could point to was the cultural center of the Philippines. Meanwhile, uh, the international financial institutions are lining up with loans. The Asian Development Bank is uh, providing a $1.6 billion loan to the Philippines for its COVID response. All these loans are hard money, that is, they're not grants, they're not uh, uh, low interest or whatever. They're, these are all high interest loans, which means debts are going to grow. These loans, we have 
no reason to believe. We have absolutely no confidence to believe, given the record of uh, elite governments, given the record of this government, that we will see any substantial amount of that money being used for COVID response. It's very likely that a big proportion of that money will be plundered by various factions of the elite. Meanwhile, we still have the debt appropriation law, which is one third of the national budget automatically for debt servicing. And we are calling for a moratorium on this debt appropriation law, which has been a historic demand of the movement. In terms of the left, the left and progressive movement has been campaigning against Duterte's military response to a public health crisis and has put forward a platform of demands that includes mass testing for all, free hospitalization for victims, uh, mass disinfection in all communities, food and water rationing for workers and the poor, distribution of face masks, hygiene kits, vitamins, contraceptions, assistance to farmers, drivers and affected workers, paid emergency leave for uninsured workers, refunding tuition to students due to class exemption, price controls on commodities, electricity, water, and communications to be provided 24-7, allowing vehicles and tricycles to provide transport to medical workers and people with medical needs, suspension of rent, water, electricity, communication, and other fees, disarming the large numbers of military and police deployed so as not to cause terror to the people, and a debt moratorium. Today, we've, to uh, uh, some general comments before I wind up. Today, we face a multiple intersecting crisis, a public health crisis triggered by the pandemic, an economic crisis with many leading financial institutions expecting this to be the worst recession in living memory, and the climate crisis and coronavirus crisis needs to be considered as a uh, part of the, the climate crisis uh, and very much so. And of course, the climate crisis and the impacts of that will continue. Um, we have in the Pacific a few days ago, we had massive cyclones. It's not like we're going to be stop stopping in the height of this that, you know, the climate impacts and extreme weather events are going to stop. Massive cyclones in Fiji, Vanuatu, and so on. These intersecting crises signal a major socioeconomic crisis uh, and some analysts have, have even said a collapse of the capitalist system. I think this is very much highlighted in the situation in the U.S. today, the center of global capitalism, the epicenter of the crisis, which is now providing the baseline for the worst case scenario with over 500,000 cases of uh, 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 infected cases and over 18,000 deaths and coming at over 2,000 deaths per day, a big majority of these African-Americans. We also think that the rising authoritarianism and the provisions that are put in place from Hungary to Britain to Chile to Israel to the U.S. and the Philippines and other countries where speakers are speaking from today could shape politics for decades to come. Um, the corona crisis has, has highlighted the fact that continuing on the capitalist path, including some reform social democratic version of it, is no longer an option. And as we struggle for our immediate demands, we also need to put forward a socialist alternative. Um, and we think that solidarity has to be an essential core of the socialist, socialist vision. And Cuba sets an example for the world today in how this socialist, socialist vision can be described and, visual, and, uh, 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 and uh, visualized. 
Finally, there will be sporadic and spontaneous combustions as people protest and resist in their struggle to survive. This is inevitable. The next steps and tasks in the Philippines today are framed by posing the following questions. Who will lead the rising opposition against Duterte? Is the political opposition with their electoral forces ready for it? Is the organized left with their mass organizations positioned and willing to read, lead? The various groups might as well merge with the rising opposition against Duterte if they are not placed to lead it. Now is the time to be tested. Thank you. I'm happy to uh, participate in this online forum, Socialist Alliance. Um, I'll try and keep it within 15 minutes so there's more time for questions. Uh, I was asked to comment on the situation in Malaysia. Um, if you look at this chart, you see if we can see it. The red line here shows Malaysia and with our 4,300 and something cases and our total deaths of 70, we seem to be doing fairly all right when you compare with other countries, for example, especially in Europe, where you find the number of cases, even cases per million population in the UK, for example, is much higher than ours. And also the case fatality ratio you know, where in the UK, for example, 12.3% of all the cases have died already, our rate of 1.6 is not too high, you know. So if you look at these kind of figures, uh, Malaysia seems to be containing the epidemic to a reasonable extent. Some of these other countries like Philippines and India, we really doubt whether all the cases are being diagnosed, you know, that's another question. But okay, that's another issue altogether. Now, the reason why Malaysia is doing relatively better is because we didn't believe, our authorities didn't believe in this, in this diagram. You know, this diagram gives the impression that if you just do mitigation, you allow the epidemic to develop and infect people, uh, but you keep it below a certain amount, then you're below this line, which is the capacity of your healthcare system, and that'll be enough. And only since you have only 1% deaths, uh, you'll get through and finally have herd immunity. This is what Boris Johnson and the group in Britain tried to think of before. Now, the problem is that this line is drawn too high. The actual capacity of the healthcare system is this line, the red line below. So if you really want to keep below the curve, then you have to have much lower number of cases. And at that rate, it will take about 50, 60 years to have the epidemic go through your whole population. So you might as well suppress and wait for the vaccine, which is what Malaysia is doing, which is what a lot of countries in East Asia uh, are doing as well, you know, in, um, in Vietnam, in Taiwan, in Japan. The, I, the thing is that this, this reasoning is flawed because this line, the infographic, is drawn too high. The real line is down here. And because they moved on this, now many countries in Europe are above this line. And so I get those horrendous mortality rates of over 10% in Italy, in Spain, in Britain. You know? um, so I think we were lucky our government didn't, we didn't believe in this. We took the, the, the line that taken in China, taken in Korea, that we have to suppress. And so there's mitigation. And uh, we have been on a lockdown since um, 
18th of March. Now we are into the fourth week of the lockdown. And these are the figures of new cases per day over the last 10 days. So on the 2nd of April, we had something like 207 cases, but yesterday it's come down to about 100 and I think 118 or so. So that seems to be a downward trend, but the government is extending the, the, the movement control order, our, our, our version of the lockdown, for another two weeks to the end of the month. And on the whole, if you look, there was a survey done yesterday among the public, on the whole, most people support what the government is doing. They appreciate that we do need some kind of a lockdown to prevent the spread of the disease, as it can be spread by people who are fairly asymptomatic, people who don't have a fever, people who don't have much cough, people who feel they're well, who don't know they're ill, can actually be uh, transmitting, can be, can be emitting viruses and transmitting it. So the only way to kind of bring it down to manageable levels is to have this lockdown, bring levels similar for Malaysia below 50 per day for the whole country before we can ease on it. Now, what has the PSM done? Well, PSM, on the 13th of March, we called for a roundtable discussion together with some of our partners in the People's Health Forum. That's a group of about five NGOs, including the PSM. And uh, we had a discussion on what the government should do, what the country should do to manage the uh, COVID epidemic. And from that discussion, we came up with a memorandum with a number of ideas that should be uh, followed by the government. So one of the things that we talked about was uh, income support, you know, for people who are under quarantine for two weeks. Uh, income support for people affected by the lockdown because they can't go to work. Uh, we asked for uh, help for small businesses. And uh, Interestingly, the government has actually implemented all of these. There was, uh, there is a, a, a policy now, which is being implemented, that four million of the poorest families in Malaysia would be given 1,600 into the bank account. Now, to put it in perspective, uh, the minimum wage in Malaysia is 1,002. The, the median factory income is about 1,007. So 1,600 per family is a fair amount. In terms of getting food for them for the next one and a half months, this would help. The government also announced something we asked for. We asked for a moratorium of all loans. There are many Malaysians who bought houses and other things, higher purchase, and they'll face problems in paying these loans. And we asked for a moratorium on loans, which the government has come to in its policy. The government has said that all loans uh, housing loans, whatever, whatever uh, personal loans, there'll be a moratorium to the end of the year, where interest will be accrued and added to the loan amount, but payments are not required now, and banks and other institutions are barred from taking legal action on these loans. We also asked in our memorandum, the memorandum that was endorsed by 42 NGOs that PSM and the other groups put forward, that the small and medium enterprises to get assistance because they form the backbone of the country. Two thirds of them, uh, more than that, about 70% of them have less than uh, 50 employees. It's more. But yet they, 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 they provide about two thirds of the employment of the country. So they would have problems with you know, meeting the wage, wage bill. 
So we ask the government for easy credit for this for these uh, for these uh, small and medium enterprises. And what we uh, were, were pleased to see was the government has actually come out with a number of programs for them. Uh, one is a cash credit of three thousand dollars for about I think it's eight hundred thousand small enterprises plus uh, terms of easy credit plus assistance in paying the thousand two hundred towards the wages of the workers of these uh, small and medium uh, enterprises. So a number of things the government did. There's one thing that we brought up in our memorandum, which the government hasn't really acted upon, that was pertaining to migrant workers. You see, in Malaysia, we have uh, about 6 million migrant workers, of which two-thirds are undocumented, are without proper passports and visas. And this 6 million uh, complement the 15 million of Malaysians in the job market. Now, right now, migrant workers live in fear of the government. They are afraid to come forward because they will have, uh, they are afraid that uh, they would be, uh, they would be uh, arrested, detained and deported. So we tell the government to have a moratorium on all immigration offenses, open the doors of our hospitals so they can get free treatment, so that if the disease spreads to them, and they won't be the conduit that goes to the whole country. So, so now actually the PSM is in a strange situation where we have come out a few times in the past month in support of some of the policies that the government has actually announced because we think they are fair policies where you have uh, uh, some kind of support for poorer people, you have uh, testing, you have... Uh, and the government has seems to be quite sober it's listening to the professionals and certain missteps, uh, they have actually corrected themselves. There was, for example, uh, in the early days of the lockdown, they wanted to arrest people who were breaking the lockdown rules and were putting them in, in, in demand. And then groups spoke out saying this is not going to help. They withdrew that. They, they were saying NGOs could not go and deliver food because that again is, uh, goes against social distancing. But when NGOs spoke up against that, they revised that. So they have done, they seem to be fairly responsive. And we have a daily update by the Director General of Health, which is quite reassuring. He talks about the number of new cases, number of deaths, and all that. The Prime Minister has come out with, uh, with, with statements about three or four times in the last three weeks, quite reassuring to the people. I think on the left, what we got to see is this COVID 19 epidemic is going to be a game changer. It has actually upended, it has upended the entire capitalist system. And this disruption is going to continue. Even in Malaysia, if after another two weeks we can bring the levels down where we can relax the movement control order, we still have to be careful because we don't have herd immunity and we can import cases. We have a long porous border with Indonesia. Cases from Indonesia come over to us because a lot of workers coming from there and work here. Uh, it can come in from international travelers. So it cannot be uh, uh, back to business as normal. Obviously, international travel, our airlines are going to be affected. The tourism sector is going to be badly hit. Uh, higher education, where we have a lot of people coming from overseas, is going to be hit. <clears throat> Mass functions, whether it's wedding, social functions like that, or religious functions, 
So it's going to be a major downturn in our Malaysian economy, and I guess in the global economy. There's going to be job losses. In Malaysia, we, we are part of the global supply chain. There's going to be a lot of job losses and unemployment. So the question is, in this situation, how are the resources of society going to be used? Are they going to be used to protect capital and the rich people? Or are they going to be used to make sure that the poorer people, that all the people in the country have enough food, have enough health care, you know, and can meet the basic needs? And that's where the contest is going to be. And I think when we try to mobilize people saying that the resources of our country, of our society, have to be used to protect the basic needs, the food for the basic, for the people, you know, that's, I think, going to get a lot of resonance. And I think that's how we got to pitch it. We got to pitch it in language that people can understand that at this time of crisis, the government cannot worry about maintaining the profits of the rich. That we have to focus on the basic needs of the poor. No one should go hungry, including foreign workers. No one should go without health care. No one should go without water. Uh, housing should not be deprived. And so we've got to talk in terms of if people can't find jobs, there's got to be UBI, universal basic income. And you're going to give universal basic income to people. Why not then employ those people to do things that are socially required? We need to reforest. Our forests in Malaysia have been badly logged. We need to clean up our waste dump sites, our landfills, and have hygienic landfills. We need to clean up the urban flat in our urban areas which have become into urban ghettos. So we're going to give universal basic income to people. Why don't we use that manpower to do the cleaning up, do the work that our society needs? Now that's the kind of packaging that we are trying to put forward to people to get people on board a program, an economic program that is meant for the masses and not for the top 1%. So that I think what we should do. Last thing I think we should say, I think as a group, as the left in Asia and Australia, we should look at um, areas like the Kok Bazaar in, in, in Bangladesh, where the Rohingyas are going to face a real problem, and do a campaign to raise money and do work with doctors without frontiers uh, to address problems there. Because I think things there can get very bad and showing solidarity in that real way may be good for us as a movement. Thank you. I'll stop here. I hope you got a lot out of this episode. To continue producing shows like this, we need your support. Consider becoming a supporter for $5 a month, sharing this show on social media, and submitting your own stories. You can do all this at our website, greenleft.org.au.